Hello, everyone. Welcome to Tuesdays with Townsend, a podcast from Rivertown Church in Brattleboro, Vermont. My name's Ben Whittinghill. It's my privilege to sit down each week with one of my fellow pastors and dear friends, David Townsend, to discuss questions about challenging issues, questions of faith, and sometimes random topics. Our goal is to serve you as you seek to follow Jesus faithfully in our post-Christian world. Thanks so much for joining us. Well, welcome, everybody. Glad to be here with you on another Tuesday with my man, David Townsend. David, how you doing today? Doing great. Glad to be here. It's, uh, it's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. Sun is shining, so, but happy to be joining with you and with everybody else on Facebook. Yeah. Well, uh, man, I think it's probably important once again, just to kind of communicate to people what we're trying to do here. So, um, this thing is starting out as mainly an outlet for, uh, shepherding our church and other people that have pressing questions. So we polled the church, uh, and try to figure out what would be most helpful for, um, in the midst of this pandemic and lockdown season, what's, what's going to be the most helpful in terms of devotional content. It's been a lot of interest in apologetics, um, challenging questions, how to share the gospel with friends. And so, man, let's, let's start there. Cause I, it's on both of our hearts to, to deal with apologetics and some people's questions, but I think it's important when we start any conversation to kind of define terms and what we mean by that, especially for people that might be new to that idea or concept. So when we talk about apologetics, what do we mean? What is that? What are we apologizing for? Um, is that what it means? Help us out there, man. Right. Yeah. So historically, an apology was basically an argument of defense, meaning you were you were defending a particular set of beliefs or or what have you. And so um, you know, it goes way back to Greek philosophers, and um, we we see that apologies or defenses were often written about several things. And so Christian apologetics is simply um, the pursuit of defending the faith through various means, through various um, genres of study and through various academic pursuits. And, and there, there, I mean, it's an all encompassing word for defending uh, the truth of the Christian worldview. Okay. So, uh, we're not apologizing for what we believe as much as defending this truth once and for all delivered to the saints, as right. the scriptures would say it. So uh, one of the things that we've said is we want to help Christians live faithfully in a post-Christian context. Now, that's not strange for us. We live in Southern Vermont. Um, so we know what we mean by that. Uh, and I think increasingly our country is becoming post-Christian. But what what does that mean when we talk about living in a post-Christian context as part of us kind of introducing this concept? We want to make sure that we are understanding the world that we live in. So help us with that a little bit, man. What, what, why do we need to understand what it means? What does it mean? Yeah. So, you know, I think there's two ways to, to really think about this. To, to really answer the question, though, you have to 
you have to ask, how did we get here? And so I'm going to maybe just explain a brief history and then explain what what it is that we're now in. And so if you take it back to at least from a Christian perspective, right in, in the advance, you know, the, uh, the history of Western civilization, um, you saw that, uh, as, um, as the Roman empire began to lose power and you had, uh, monarchies and whatnot, uh, spring up throughout Europe, you went into what was called the middle ages and the middle ages, um, were largely filled with many, uh, like, uh, spiritual speculation, um, a lot of superstitions. That's why, old Gothic cathedrals have gargoyles and things like that. Um, and there was a lot of, uh, a lot of superstitious beliefs, um, about things that were unseen. Um, and then you had in that time, the Renaissance period, which, uh, and where art and literature and whatnot were, um, were beautiful and captivating and it was a really unique time in history. But then from there we entered into the enlightenment period, which um, some call the age of reason. And coinciding with that came the industrial revolution. And so there was this consensus among Western, within Western civilization that um, technology and reason, right? The pursuit of logical, reasonable um, ends is a good thing. And it is ultimately the chief end for which humanity, you know, must aim. And, you that that basically created what we would call modernism, and um, that carried us through basically till the middle of the 20th century or just before, because uh, society was convinced that uh, science, medicine, um, technology, it would better um, our civilization in such a way that, that we would have no more hurts, you know, no more pains, that we would, uh, in a sense, be a utopian society if we had enough knowledge, enough reason, enough, uh, it, you know, scientific advancement. And what happened was the world wars. Um, basically, we got to a place where uh, we had all this incredible um, technology uh, for for many things, and some of that was made to was put to use for warfare and you had the collapse of European society from world wars one and two. And that then led into what we would call postmodernism, which is the idea that, well, the pursuit of truth like ration, uh, you know, uh, or in reason got us nowhere. So now we question truth in, and many would say that truth is is not real in the sense that your truth is your truth, mine is mine, that there is no such thing as absolute truth. And um, the, the, the church always had a place in each of these ages. But as truth became questioned, so did the a lot of the, valid, the validity of the truth statements of the church. And so with postmodernism kind of came post-Christendom. Um, in which the church had authority in society and in culture at large. And so uh, being in a post-Christian society is one in which uh, postmodernism has kind of fully bloomed. And even now, we're almost in a post-postmodern society in many areas, particularly in New England, where people are craving spiritual things, right? We see a lot of neo-paganism and, and other mysticism and, and somewhat, uh, you know, like ancient mythic type beliefs uh, reinvented for modern society, but still a rejection of truth and of 
the authority of the Christian worldview. So we, what we mean in a nutshell by post-Christian society is a, a society that has rejected the truth claims of the Bible and the Christian worldview and is assuming that there is no truth. Therefore, we pursue life as we see fit. Right. Okay. So uh, that's helpful. And we also have to be mindful as Christians or anybody, we talk about living in a post-Christian culture. We're not saying that every single person inside of this culture has the same belief system, or this is like universally true, but it's helpful to know sort of the waters that you're swimming in. You sort of like almost know the default system. The majority of the people in the place that you live believe one, two, three, right? Right. Or they're yeah. influenced by this. So if you had to kind of cull down the kind of major beliefs inside of this system that somebody say in New England, you, you're just average person that you would encounter. And you're trying to say, what are the common threads and the major beliefs inside of this post-Christian system? What would you say to that? Well, experientially, most of the people that I have encountered um, would acknowledge that truth is relative. They would, or at least claim truth is relative. Also, perhaps that um, many are still seeking a somewhat utopian society, and many are looking for those answers in their politics. And so we see uh, a vast majority of New Englanders on the left side of the political spectrum. And for many of them, it is the, it is the conduit by which we will have a, a, uh, you know, a free, just, and fair society for all peoples everywhere. And so you, you see a lot of uh, weight put on governing authorities in um, – in post-Christendom uh, or, you know, post-Christian society, uh, truth is relative. And I think those two things are um, counterintuitive, by the way. I, I think um, they don't work together, but yet both of those things are, are sometimes upheld. Um, uh, explain what you mean by that. Pause, pause there for a second. So explain what you mean by that. Those two sure. things feel mutually exclusive or... Right. Well, to say truth is relative means that you don't have a say, Right. It, it's to say that there is no moral good by which you can stake your claim on, right? If you think murder is wrong, but you don't think truth is real, well, you have no claim that murder is wrong. Who's to say it's wrong if truth isn't real? Or who's to say that people should be fed and housed and clothed if truth isn't real? What standard, by what standard are you making that judgment, that moral judgment? Right. Right. Yeah. So at the end of the day, people, the, the, there's always questions that, well, first of all, the, the moral relativity or uh, unbelief in absolute truth, it just, it doesn't tell the truth about the world. So you're always going right. to find holes in it. Sure. Uh, you can't explain humility as an admirable quality if the whole world is just sort of this dog eat dog natural selection right this there is no truth and you're just out to get ahead right. where do right. where do humility and kindness fit in as moral qualities 
if there is right. no standard of what is right and and care of your neighbor, right? right. Um, so this idea of um, this absence of truth, just in your experience. So we, we run into this a lot. I'd say in most conversations that I have here, friendly conversations with people, but fundamental, fundamentally we disagree on the nature of truth. And a lot of people tell me I'm not religious, but I am spiritual, which kind of speaks to that post post Christian mindset that you're talking about. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I have, I have traded probably and and most normally because of some hurt in their past some experience that they've had whether they've witnessed some kind of travesty in their childhood or on the news or whatever else but people have said look we see uh who we think jesus's people are or what organized religion has done and i cannot shake now they may not explicitly say this but i cannot shake this feeling that I have deep down that there is some higher power, natural, uh, supernatural outside of me. I, I feel that. I sense that. God's written his law on our hearts is what his word says. So they can't shake that. But they've jettisoned the idea that it's in any way connected or related to the church. Right. So how do you have those conversations in your workplace or as you go that are winsome and like rich with truth, right? Well, you're not just trying to win an argument. You're, you're, you're seeking to be winsome, but you're not, you're not letting up on the, on the nature of truth at the same time. What does that look like? Right. Well, I think the first place to start for, for us. And I mean, we have a great example in, um, in the Lord Jesus himself, because in humility, he came to serve and not be served. And he displayed love and service in the form of death in submitting himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. So, so I think, you know, and we see a lot of this in the, the epistles, um, that humility is, is the the one like virtue that leads to all the other godly virtues and really is, is what is necessary to live godly and like Jesus. Uh, Paul says to not be wise in your own estimation and to also consider others better than yourself. So um, I think that's the, like, that's the groundwork on a heart level that we must do within ourselves before we really engage. Um, That's not to say we might not biff it or something, but um, you know, especially when I was really, when I was new to the faith and had a lot of zeal and, uh, you know, uh, Paul says to <laughs> talking about, uh, Jews in Romans, he says they have zeal without knowledge, you know, and it's, it's easy, I think for a believer to be there. But, um, but I think humility must always be put on display. Humility will produce gentleness and it will showcase love for your neighbor. Um, and that's, that's critical. And that's, of utmost importance. Um, however, that doesn't mean we don't proclaim truth and assert the truths of scripture. And so as far as conversations I've had with people, um, I usually like, I want to listen to them. I'll ask provoking questions such as, 
what do you believe about the world and who said, you know, who determines what's right or wrong? Inevitably, it's always self, right? It, particularly in this day and age, we have a lot of self-actualization movements and, you know, find your inner self, realize yourself. Well, it's all it's all self-serving because at the end of the day, you're you're basically saying, I'm gonna look within to determine my reality. And what I determine to be my reality is therefore truth. And so we're just making ourselves to be God um, with that kind of stuff. And it's, I mean, it's idolatry, but it's also the antithesis of the gospel, which says we desperately need rescue from ourselves because we are, um, you know, we cannot save ourselves. We are not God. So, um, and so there's a lot of that going on. So I think you just have to be a good listener. You have to speak clearly, but also gently um, and with humility, but also draw out of them. Like I'll ask questions about say, so, you know, what if your truth says that my truth is a lie, who is true, right? If truth is relative, well, even that is a truth statement, right? Some people say there is no such thing as truth. Well, you just made a truth statement. So which is it? You know, there are questions like that, that I think provoke and pull someone out of themselves and really make them come to the logical end of their belief system. Um, and that, that's, I think that does a great deal in, um, in getting along the conversation so that you can then point people to the truth of Jesus. Yeah. I've, I've always told people in those kind of conversations that nobody wants their banking to work that way. Right. Right. As soon as you start talking about something that feels as ethereal as God and what's unseen, then you can start making some, some more like ridiculous statements that, but as soon as they're like concrete and you hop on a bus and you realize you were headed North instead of South and you have this big uh uh-oh moment, you realize like there was one direction that this bus was heading and it can't be a different thing to you than to me. Right. Right. You're either headed to Northern Vermont or you're headed to mass, but you can't be headed in both directions at the same time. It cannot happen. Right. And so our our whole world functions on the like truth is absolute. Right. I mean, and, and, you know, there, there is a lot of uh, philosophical thought and that, that would say that I'm wrong, but, and we could go down there, but I don't think it's, you know, not, not today, but, um, but all of it, I think it's, it falls short when it sees the world as we know it is all functioning on some kind of moral civil civil or uh, you know ethical code and um we all presume to for it to be true so the question is where did it come from you know and what makes it true yeah it's vital for christians to realize that we you have to you have to do both of these things speaking the truth in love it has to be true or else it's not loving. Uh, but if it's not done in love, then you're just, you're just going to be beating people over the head with truth right. and trying to win their minds without really connecting with them. Um, and so using the Bible in a winsome way, um, maybe we can do a, a, an episode just on that. Cause I think that's, sure. as we talk about apologetics, defending the faith, sharing the gospel with people, that we work with or with our neighbors, you have to learn how to, how to share the Bible. It's the words of life. It's what's going to win people and connect with their hearts and not just win arguments here in a way that is 
rich with love, but it's declaratory, right? That we're not just saying, well, what I believe is this, and then we're adding it to the menu. That's not what right. we need to do. We're not right. adding Jesus to anybody's menu of options. And so that if they can come away thinking, well, that's what David believes and that's good for him, but he thinks it's okay for me to still be here, then we haven't, we haven't shared the gospel yet. Right. So, so Absolutely. what would you say? It, let's wrap up with this question. How does Christianity specifically speak into the postmodern idea that there is no truth? I think the most succinct evidence, right, in, in that we have that Christianity is true, right? Because of all the competing worldviews, the question is, what is true? What is real? And the most, you know, bomb-proof uh, and absolute evidence that we have that is also succinct for the entire Christian, it, it upholds alone the entire Christian worldview is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because if the resurrection is not true, then this is all in vain. If Jesus didn't actually leave that grave, then none of this is real. And we, even if he was, even if he was a good person, right? If he didn't resurrect, that's all he was. Or maybe even he was sinless, but his resurrection is the vindication that his death was the accepted sacrifice for the sins of the world, right? Everything as far as his identity and mission, every, everything relating to that is validated and vindicated by his resurrection. And so without the resurrection, we have nothing. Hmm. We shouldn't believe a word he said, and the scriptures are not even to be trusted if the resurrection didn't happen, as far as I'm concerned. And I think um, the scriptures are, they, they, you know, they attest to self, but they have historical proof and we have that proof in the resurrection. Yeah. And there's, I mean, even just off the top of your head, you could probably give stunning evidences, just bullet points of how we even know with confidence that the resurrection is a historical event. This is, we are not called as Christians to this sort of blind faith that puts its brain on a shelf and just doesn't think. Right. Like it's like science has the thinkers and then we just have this blind whatever. But as right. logical, reasonable people that are using our brains, we have come to the conclusion to take a step of faith based on the evidence. Right. Of what we of what we have found to be true. So how did yeah, you how do you arrive there for, for the resurrection? Sure. Well, there's there's several things right at the top of my head. First, um, we, we know that Jesus appeared to more than 500 people. So this wasn't a closed, hidden event, right, to his followers. Um, we know, too, that the disciples who, you know, who we also call the apostles, they never recanted. In fact, um, most of them were put to death because of this particular belief. They would not reject the, the resurrection. There are many things in life that you will change your mind on, on if someone says, I'm going to kill you otherwise, right? You're going to be put to death for this, and they wouldn't do it. Uh, another one, the, uh, the Jews, um, 
of that day and age, right? Because Christianity is the fulfillment of Judaism. So there were many Jews who didn't want Jesus to be the Messiah and rejected that notion, but they never said the resurrection didn't happen. Like the, the, the Jews of the day would actually, um, like the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the Jews, I, I, again, I'm not trying to paint some uh, ethnic picture, but, um, or be anti-Semitic here, but um, there were leading Jewish people in that day who came up with other stories to, um, to justify what happened, right? So it wasn't as if, well, you're making these, this up. No, no, they had to come up with other alternatives to why the right. grave There's was an empty grave. So what are we going to do? Right. You got to, you have to, right. you have to say something. His body right. was stolen or. Right. And the oldest, uh, like literature regarding it, right. The, the evidences of the gospels, um, they say women were the first to discover that the grave was empty, which if you were making up a story in a, in a, um, largely uh, man-controlled society, you wouldn't say women are the ones who first reported this event. It would, it would be ridiculous because wh- who would believe them in a society such as that? And so the fact that the truthfulness of their account is reported as fact is, is telling to the fact, you know, that it, it did happen this way. There's no reason to change the, the data, you know, to change the, uh, the events because women first discovered that the, the grave was empty. Yeah. Yeah, there's like he always did. He Jesus always honored women. Always yes. been a big part of his ministry and right. And that if you were trying to fabricate a story, that would have never gotten off the ground if it wasn't true in that day. Right. Right. Um you know, I think about um it's so important as we're sharing the gospel with people, it's so easy for people to make the conversation about something else. Right. So you've heard a lot when you're sharing the gospel. Well, what about this? Right. What about all these people that will never hear? Or what about. Right. And, and it's so easy for people to ask you questions and to kind of get the argument about something way over here. And what I am so moved to do most often time is thinking like, OK, but what about you? What about your soul? What about your personal guilt before holy God? And, and you see this with Jesus in John four with the woman at the well. You know, she's, she kind of keeps deflecting the conversation away from herself and he keeps bringing the conversation to her and the nature of worship and, um, and her sin. And she's like, Hey, you know, we heard when the Messiah comes, you know, we should, we worship him in this mountain or that mountain. And she's making it about something right. else. Right. So I think bringing it back to that specific person and looking at Jesus saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. You can't get more concrete in terms of a truth claim than that, him saying, right. I am the truth. Right. Our whole world lives in, um, like Pontius Pilate looks at him, and he says, what is truth? And then before you can get an answer yeah. from the one who is the truth, he walks away. And that's the world that we're living in, right? It's like, what is truth? Right. But not in a way that we're actually looking for an answer. We just, in our heart of hearts, don't want there to be one. Right. Because if there is one, then all of a sudden I'm accountable. Right. We want to be our own truth because it's easy. It's comfortable. And um, I can make my life what I want it to be. The, um, I think that the biggest thing when I've encountered and discussed with people who do reference like these other things is... Is there there is I, and I think I'm sympathetic to some of that too because I think even Christians can sympathize 
and almost have dreams of of it being different. And what I mean by that is not a hope that it were different, but um, like Origen dreamed that universalism was true, but he knew it wasn't because, you know, it, but that's, I'm, and I'm not saying that's not even a sinful hope or right, a dream, but, but the fact is this is the truth and these are the evidences for it. And if Jesus resurrected, then he is who he says he is. And so every conviction I have, every belief, every dream I have of what could be, it all falls short of what is. Mm-hmm. And so I'm not saying that it's ridiculous for people to think, well, wouldn't it be nice if Jesus just saved the whole world and people didn't have to, you know, repent and believe? Well, yeah, it kind of would, but that's just not the truth. And we have to testify to the truth because his name is Jesus. Yeah. That's so good, man. You know, I, I keep thinking as you're talking about C.S. Lewis's quote that, look, you, you, you have to put away, we'll find it. We'll do, we'll, we'll talk about this quote maybe next time. But he, he says something to the effect of, you got to put away this notion of Jesus as a good moral teacher. He hasn't, he hasn't left room for that. He, he claimed to be God. And so if he is telling the truth, then that has massive implications on our lives. And if he's not, then let's write him off. Let's warn people about him, right? <laughs> right. But let's not just adopt this sort of like Jesus and Gandhi are kind of in the same you know, fraternity. Right, right. Um, so maybe next time, bro, we can kind of get into, well, David, this is great, but it sounds like a lot of what you guys are referencing is from the Bible. And that's just a book written by people and we can't trust it. And I, I think that that's probably a major conversation in a post-Christian world of, Big time. of how we get to it. Right. Because right. How do I know everything you keep, say keeps coming back to the Bible? Right. Yeah. I'd love to talk about the authenticity and the authority of the Bible and how we know it to be the word of God. Yeah. That'd be a great episode. Yeah. Well, cool, man. Well, listen, you guys, uh, make sure that you are, um, I'm going to check right now to see what kind of, if we have any comments that have come in or questions, but make sure that as, uh, we're doing this, that, um, you guys are chiming in with comments, questions that you have, or, um, that uh, you're leaving us ideas for uh, future episodes, future topics that you'd like to see covered. Um, So I'm looking through here. Naomi says paganism is also hundreds of years old in this area Um, and had some other comments. So listen, Naomi, uh, Levi, good to see you guys on here. Y'all leave um, comments different things that you guys would want to see covered in the future. Um, but David, man, give us a, a parting word, right? As we talk about living faithfully, talked about what apologetics is, postmodern culture. Um, give us kind of a parting word for living faithfully, defending the faith in a post-Christian context. Then we'll sign off. I think we should always be encouraged by the fact that the church was born in the fringes and that the, the early church, right, the first church, right, those who went out and declared the gospel of Jesus right after his resurrection and ascension, they were in a society that wholeheartedly rejected the claims of Christianity. And the church thrived because they, and like 
we found our sufficiency completely in the person and work of Jesus and not on our own merits and our own ability to communicate even what, you know, we're called to communicate. It's not on us and our works uh, won't produce the joy, the satisfaction and the assurance that we have in the finished work of Jesus. And so whether we uh, have a seat at the table in politics, you know, and have a say in our community or we're in the, the, the fringes, uh, the gospel doesn't change. It endures forever. Yeah. Amen. Well, thanks, bro, for your time. And thanks, everybody, for tuning in. And we will see you guys next. Random fact. Do you want a random fact of the day? We'd love a random fact. Yeah. The McCall parrot is born both blind and featherless. All right. There you go. See you next Tuesday.